morning, CPC. My name is Will Cody, and I'm the campus minister at Austin P for our denomination, the PCA. And it's a great pleasure to open the Bible with you this morning. As you may be aware, today is Palm Sunday. This is the day that we remember the triumph, what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This is the day that um, the end of the week um, is going to be Easter. And the people, as Jesus comes in, they are shouting, Richard explained this, Hosanna, which means save or save us. And they proclaim him to be their king. But the irony is that though the words that these people were saying, um, they're totally appropriate to who this man was and what he was coming to do. They didn't really know what was going on. Their hope was that Jesus, after seeing him perform all these miracles, after seeing and hearing Jesus teach with such authority, that Jesus was going to lead this revolt, this uprising against the Roman Empire, against the oppressors of the Jews at this time. And he was going to save them from their oppressors. But Jesus did not do that. And they might have gotten a little bit of a clue from the fact that he's riding this like clumsy, gentle donkey into Jerusalem instead of this huge war horse, which is what, if that was his plan, he might have been riding on. He did come to Jerusalem to save, but not in the way that they were expecting. Instead, he did something that no one was expecting or probably even thought to hope for. One week later, he died the punishment of death. He took the consequences of sinners, of bad people, and then after taking the consequences for them, he rose from the grave three days later. He was a substitute for these bad people. He came to Jerusalem to save these people from their sins and from death itself. And what Jesus did was like infinitely more valuable, infinitely more significant than salvation from Rome. That would have been very significant if he had done that, but this is infinitely more significant. These people's hopes, they are not big enough. Jesus came into Jerusalem to save all who would believe in him from the eternal power of sin and the consequences which are death. And our text in this morning, Revelation 19, was written for people like you and me whose hopes are not big enough. This, this uh, text was written for people whose hope needs a bigger, greater horizon than we have. Because Jesus is Lord, he is alive, he rose from the grave, we're gonna celebrate this one week from today. And our hope is in another triumphal entry that this one that we're celebrating today points to. What we are waiting for, what our hope is in, is this second return of Jesus. You know, when we talk about hope in the biblical sense, hope doesn't mean I really want this to happen. Hope is the thing that we're trusting in will happen in the future. And everybody has a hope. Some of y'all, some, pe some people's hopes are really depressing. Some people have not really thought out their hope. Everybody's got an idea of how, where this is all going. And this text today is about our hope. What are we trusting in that is going to happen in the future? What are we waiting for? Revelation 19 tells the beginning of this very story, the beginning of the end of history as we know it. It's part of the story that extends from chapter 19. You can read, uh, Revelation ends at chapter 22. You can go home and read this. I'll, I'll tee it up for you to go home and read the rest of Revelation today. It's only a couple more chapters. You can turn there to Revelation 19. It's on page 1040 in your Bibles that are here in your chairs. Let's read verses 11 through 16. And then let's ask God to help us to understand. This is God's word. When I saw, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood or sprinkled in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's ask God for help. Father, this text is uh, challenging. It's hard. Actually, everything in the Bible, we can't understand any of it at all unless you help us. So we ask your help this morning. Help us to understand your word and that you would set us free. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was in eighth grade. I was a pretty cool eighth grader. And uh, I was really into uh, Dave Matthews Band. Anybody, any Dave heads out there, past or present Dave heads? We got a couple of hands up. Okay. Got a few Dave, Dave heads up there. So when I was in eighth grade, I was really into Dave Matthews, and my brother was the one that turned me on to Dave Matthews Band. And so when I was 12, he's 12 years older than me, so when I was 12 or 13, he took me to my first ever concert in Knoxville, and it was at World's Fair Park in Knoxville, and it was to see Dave Matthews Band. It was the highlight of my life up until that point. And so uh, we get there, I'm with my older brother, he's in grad school at UTK, and um, I'm hanging out in this college town, seeing this college band, um, with all these college students, and I've got my DMB, Dave Matthews Band shirt on, so everybody knows I'm his biggest fan. And I saw some, uh, the concert started, I started seeing some people crowd surfing in the crowd. If you don't know what crowd surfing is, crowd surfing is when somehow you get on top of the crowd and they're like moving you with their hands and you just go wherever the hands lead you. <laughs> um, and I don't remember how I got up there, but the next thing I knew, I was crowd surfing. <laughs> As an eighth grader <laughs> at this Dave Matthews Band concert, and it was like living the dream. This was the high point of, this was the high point of my life at this point. I'm at a DMB show. Uh, Dave is playing What Would You Say? Um, a few dozen yards away from me. And I'm hanging around all these college students. Uh, that would end up being my life, actually. And I'm one of them. Just like I'm one of them. And I'm crowd surfing on top of it. And, I have no, and I, as I'm moving around, I have no idea where my brother goes, to, where he is. I don't know where I am. Uh, and this lasts a few seconds, but then suddenly, um, I think this is how all crowd surfing ends, I fall. And <laughs> I fall down like this, and my feet are up in the air, and somebody's holding my legs up, and my head's like touching the ground. And there's like a, a hole of human bodies that I'm just looking up in, and I'm down at the bottom of it. And then um, suddenly, someone yells, take his shoes! And I was like, no, don't take my bands. And then... Uh, and he was like, take his shoes. And people, and then this guy was going to take my shoes and throw them some. I don't know what he was going to do with my, with my shoes. But then out of nowhere, I hear someone say, don't take his shoes. And I look over here, and it's my brother Simon yelling at this guy that's going to take my shoes. And he saved me. He came in and saved me when I was at the bottom of this pit. <laughs> um, so I was in a rough spot at the bottom of that hole at the Dave Matthews Band concert. And I needed someone that cared about me, that was going to come and find me and save me, someone with power to save me, and that was my brother, Simon. God's people that receive this letter, the book of Revelation is a letter, <clears throat> and God's people today and God's people then, we need to know something similar 
to what I needed to know when I was in that hole, that Jesus is coming. Jesus is returning. The big idea of this text is that Jesus will return. And if it is true that Jesus will return, these are our three points. First of all, put your hope in the faithfulness of Jesus. Secondly, put your hope in the power of Jesus. And third, put your hope in the vindication of Jesus. If Jesus is returning, these are at least three things that we should be doing, putting our hope in Jesus. So our first point, you should put your hope in the faithfulness of Jesus. Let's read again in verse 11. We'll go through this text. Um, John says, John who wrote this says, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, if you've ever been afraid to read the book of Revelation or confused, one thing that you might not be taking into account is the genre of this book. There's lots of different genres in the Bible. There's historical narrative, there's poetry, there's prophecy. This genre is called apocalypse. This is called apocalyptic, um, this is the apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature, you gotta know the rules of a genre before you can understand what the hay is going on in the book, right? And apocalyptic literature uses these very dramatic pictures and these actions, things like beasts and dragons and seals and bowls and plagues. And these represent spiritual realities or historical realities or present realities or just something true that you and I need to know. It's, it's portrayed in this very dramatic word picture. Revelation is made up in tons of tons of these pictures and symbols. That's the, all of Revelation. And the first symbol in our text here in chapter 19 is a symbol for the Lord Jesus Christ. John sees heaven rent open and out comes this rider on this white horse. And the rider is called faithful and true. They call him faithful and true. We know that this is the Lord Jesus because elsewhere in the book of Revelation, Jesus calls himself the faithful and true one, the faithful and true witness. And the entrance of this rider, Jesus, He's the, he is the hero of the whole Bible from beginning to end. And he's invading, he's physically, with his body, breaking into this world, breaking into history. So John's using this vivid imagery to describe the, the end of history as we know it, when the king returns, when the king finally returns. Now you might notice there are several names here in this text given or uh, given to this, to this writer, or that he is called by the people. And the first thing that he is called here is faithful and true. Faithful and true. Why do we need to know? Why do you think Jesus is called faithful and true? Um, why are we, you and I, going to call him faithful and true? And why do God's people now, why do we need to know and need to be reminded that he is faithful and true? Why does John start this section like this? Think of it like this. Jesus has told us to bet the farm on him and his return. Jesus has asked us, he's told us, he's commanded us to put all of our chips on him and on his return. Jesus has made a lot of eternal, big eternal promises. Jesus has asked also, Jesus has asked a lot from us. Jesus has asked us to die to ourselves. He's asked a lot of us and he's made some really big promises. For example, he's told us that he is going to get rid of pain, sickness, and everything that is sad. He's told us to believe that there will be a resurrection from the dead 
for those who trust in him. Here's where it says this, if you have your Bible open, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. This is the promise. Jesus will wipe away, verse 21, verse 4. Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That is a huge promise. That is a huge eternal promise. Jesus is asking us, telling us to bet the farm on his return. More things, right? This is big, he's asking big things of us. He's asking us, he's telling us, he's commanding us to be chased with our hearts and our bodies, for example, and to only share them with our spouse. He's told us that he has done away with the moral guilt, your moral guilt for all the bad things you've done. He's taken care of it on the cross. He's taken the punishment for your sins. That's a huge promise that he's made. Jesus has told us, again, this is hard. Jesus has told us not to take vengeance on our enemies, but we're to love them. And he's going to take care of it for us. He's told us that following him is going to entail losing friends, family members, jobs, security, money, safety, but that you will receive a hundredfold beginning in this life, but in the, in the life to come in eternity. And here's the thing. There's a sense in which we are all here waiting and holding our breath for him to come through. So that although we already trusted him, although we get to see this, we get glimpses of this now in this life in a limited way, when he comes, we are going to say at the end of the day, Jesus, you are faithful and true when we see him come. When he comes, you are faithful and true. And we're going to be like, man, how could I have ever doubted you, Jesus? Why did I do that? You are faithful. You are uncompromisingly committed to your people. You are true. What you say is and will be is and will be. We trust Jesus. We trust Jesus with a personal faith. We trust him as we would a person. That's what personal faith means. Personal faith doesn't mean me as an individual versus, you know, um, corporately versus individual. It means per, like impersonal versus impersonal. We don't trust him with impersonal. We trust him as we, as we would a person. He is a person and we trust him to come through with us just like we would a friend or a family member that he's got us and he will come through. That he will personally deliver on his promises. And what Revelation 19 all the way to the end, verse 22 is supposed to do for us, one of the things is to stir up for us these places where Jesus has made promises to us and he is going to come through. What are you waiting for? What is your hope for when Jesus returns? It is good to have hopes for when Jesus returns because he's gonna come through all the places you put your chips down on Jesus. There are things in my life that I have set apart for the day that Jesus comes. There are special yearnings in my heart, places in my life where I am waiting for Jesus to come and destroy evil and corruption and death and pain forever, specific places. What are you waiting for, for the day that faithful and true one returns? I wanna see people that I love that have died, I wanna see them. And Jesus says that he saved anyone who trusts in him. I will get to see them again. I wanna see the result, I wanna see the result of my forgiving people when it feels like death to do so. I wanna see sick and disabled people freed from the shackles of broken bodies. I wanna see how people turned out that I shared the gospel with and I get to, in the, the seed of me and other people that have all loved these people and prayed for them. I wanna see the results of that, which we will get to see. 
I want to see people that have deep mental, emotional, physical, relational problems. I want to see them whole and happy. I want to see how God used the money that I gave for his kingdom and his purposes. How did he use that? Because it's so invisible to me now. It's so invisible to us now. Um, I want to see what it was like in heaven as I joined in the hosts of heaven in worshiping God. I want to see what it was like when I came to, showed up to worship God on Sunday mornings. And finally, I want to see, there's many more, but I want to see what society looks like and culture and communities look like without oppression, without injustice, without sin, and without death. And you know what? One more thing. I want to see, uh, the, I want to see the reward that I have for all the times I've given up my desires for his desires, seeking to lovingly change thousands of diapers in my lifetime, which I'm past that stage now. I'm happy. But giving my time and giving my energy for other people when I could be serving myself, I want the reward that he promises. Even if the reward from Jesus is simply well done, good and faithful servant. If that's the reward, that's, if I have a heart to actually receive that in the new heavens and new earth, hearing that from Jesus, that would be enough for me at the end of the day. I want that commendation that he promises me. Do you, have, do you have yearnings like this in your heart? Is your hope in the return of Jesus? If so, it will affect your life today. Your hope in the future is going to affect your life today. Let me put it this way. Are you leaning into Jesus's re- promise of his return and his promises? Are you leaning into them in such a way that if he doesn't come through, your life is a, look, will look like a total ca- catastrophic mess and a waste? Are you living your life such that if Jesus does not, is not coming back, that your life will come to a pitiful end because you stuck so much on Jesus's return? There should, be all, there should be loose strings that only get tied up and only make sense when Jesus returns. Because when this long wait is over, one of the most natural things that is gonna come out of your mouth and mine is you are faithful and true. I've been waiting for you. I've been trusting and obeying you. You told us to, you helped us by your Holy Spirit and you came and everything you said would happen is coming to pass. If it's true that Jesus will return, you should put your hope in the faithfulness of Jesus. He is faithful and true to you, his people. And if our hope is in the faithfulness of Jesus, what John gives us next is an account of the power that he comes with. This is our second point. If Jesus is returning, we should put our hope in the power of Jesus. We need to know not only that he is faithful, but he is coming in power to fulfill these promises. Um, I think for various reasons, we forget about the overwhelming, infinite, omnipotent power of Jesus. Maybe it's because we focus rightly on his three years of ministry where he humbled himself and emptied himself of his power and glory. But when Jesus returns, he will not be riding to earth in peace on a donkey. He's already come in humility 2,000 years ago. And he is still humble with us today. He's he's still humble with even his enemies today. Anyone who turns and trusts in him is saved. All the way up until today, Jesus is humble with sinners and bad people. But when he returns, he is bringing his power to rid his and our home. He's coming to rid this world where we're going to live. He's going to rid it of all evil and all the results of evil. Look at verse 12. This is a word, again, this is a word picture 
filled with symbols that will describe what, it, uh, what is going to actually happen when Jesus returns, the end of history, starting at verse 12. Now, pay attention to how Jesus is portrayed. This all points to realities. This points to uh, sp- physical and spiritual realities. Put the symbols together in your head. It's a, I love the imagery in Revelation. So verse 12, talking about Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what does Jesus look like here? I don't, I don't watch The Chosen, but I wonder what this episode is going to be like when they, if they ever get around to making this episode of The Chosen. Um, I was a cook at a restaurant in, when I was in college, and this one guy got, I was reading Revelation recently, and this one guy got really mad, and he was like, man, I'm so mad I could punch Jesus. And I was like, Jesus would destroy you. <laughs> and he was like, what? And I was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> it might be the wrong application of this. <laughs> but uh, that came to mind as I was reading this text. He has... Jesus has uh, eyes that are like a flame of fire. That means that he sees everything. He sees and knows everything. There's not one thing, evil or good, that will escape his sight. In Jesus' war on unrighteousness, nothing will escape his notice. And on his head are many diadems. I didn't know this for a long time, but diadems is just another fancy word for a crown. (laughs) And it symbolizes power. Who's got the power? That guy with the with the crown on. Who's got the power? That gal with the diadem on. They're the ones that are in charge. And Jesus doesn't have seven crowns. He doesn't have 10 crowns. He's got many crowns. And I don't know how this imagery works. I'm interested how you, y'all imagine it. Is it like all stacked on top of each other? Is it one big <laughs> mega crown? I'm not sure how this works. Whatever looks cooler, you be the judge. But these many crowns represent Jesus's victory over false religion, over oppressive kingdoms, over systems of corrupt power and abuse. With his flaming eyes, it's kind of like a Terminator. I saw that recently again. It's kind of like the Terminator. Like with his flaming eyes, he singles out and he makes war against everything that is against God and rightness and beauty and joy and goodness. He destroys it, taking their crown, and he makes it his own crown. He is the king of the kings, and he is the Lord of all the lords. And he's going to take their rule, take their reign, of these realms devastated by their misrule. And he's going to reign there in righteousness instead. And he comes on the scene and his robe is bloody from battles. Bloody, not his blood, actually in this scene, his enemy's blood. And his weapon is the sharp sword from his mouth. And all throughout the Bible, the sharp sword of the mouth or sharp sword, it represents the word of God. And indeed, he's called here the word of God. He's going to judge his enemies justly. The standard by which they will be judged will be God's word. So Jesus comes to destroy evil. Jesus comes to destroy evildoers. Jesus comes to destroy injustice and those who practice injustice. Abuse and those who abuse. Lies and those who lie. Jesus will get rid of unfaithfulness and all those who practice unfaithfulness. And this is good news. He is coming to rule in righteousness and make this world habitable and safe again. As it is, this world is not habitable and not safe. 
we try to make our, we try to make it feel like this is a habitable, safe place, and it's absolutely not. And notice that where is our ultimate destiny? You can read about this in the rest of Revelation. Where is our ultimate destiny? It's not in the clouds. We're not effervescent beings in, for eternity that are going to like our hands are going to go through each other and we're flying around. It's this is I don't know where that came from. We are going to live on this earth. We're going to live on this earth just like this, except everything that's evil and bad and death, anything that has anything to do with death and sin and selfishness is going to be ridded of forever. This is our eternal home on this earth with Jesus reigning in all of his power. So because Jesus will return, you should put your hope in the faithfulness of Jesus and in the power of Jesus. And you should also put your hope in the vindication of Jesus. Look with me in verse 14. The rider on the white horse, faithful and true, the word of God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is followed by who? Verse 14, armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, who are following him on white horses. So these people, these things, these, these, uh, they're people, these people riding on these white horses, they're at least the saints that have died. There might be some other kind of heavenly creatures thrown in there as well. But the image here, take it with the rest of Revelation, the image here is these saints, these people, a saint simply means somebody who is set apart, a, a, a Christian, is saints who have been maligned, abused, mistreated, persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. And the world, while they were on the, on the earth, the world tried to persuade them, the world tried to manipulate them, the world tried to seduce them into trusting in money and comfort and power and safety romantic relationships, all those idols we talked about last week that we so easily make idols and bow down to them. Anything but trusting personally in Jesus. And these people have died staying faithful to Jesus and trusting in his faithfulness and his power and in his forgiveness. And they're now, after having died, they are coming back bodily with Jesus, led by their leader, their, this faithful king in all his power, and all these saints were right all along to trust in Jesus. They were right all along. They were faithful and true to the one who is faithful and true. And they're going to be vindicated before everyone and everything that oppressed them and opposed them. And they're going to see that they were right all along. They're going to hear that they were right all along when Jesus destroys all of this evil that they were opposed to as they trusted Jesus. So when Jesus returns, all who have believed in him, all who have been persecuted or mocked for believing in him. All who have been taken advantage of because we trust him in Jesus. All who have given up things for Jesus. You will be vindicated. It will be openly shown to all that you are right to trust in Jesus. It was the right thing to do to trust in Jesus because he's coming back. They will see you riding on a white horse with Jesus. Now, what are we... What are we going to be vindicated about? What do we need? Somebody said, yeah, he was right all along. What do we need Jesus? Why do we need Jesus here? Well, it's in our context here in the South, it's probably not going to be that we say we trust in Jesus. Maybe in your context it is, but in general, that's not why we get persecuted, why we get pushed back, right? What's more likely, it's not who we say we trust in. That's not what's going to get attacks to us and challenges to us. It's what we do 
in response to who he trusted. It's the outworking of our faith in this returning king. For example, I, want, I wonder if there's anyone out at our church or anyone that has lost your job or something else really important because of Jesus. Maybe not merely because you said you believed in Jesus, but because they were asked to do something that the king of kings considered evil. Cheating, lying, something like this. And when you didn't play ball, when you said no, you got canned, you got fired, or your way up the ladder got suddenly blocked forever. This should happen. This should be happening. <laughs> or if there was someone who has lost, maybe there's someone here who has lost a lot of popularity for not going along with the crowd. Someone who stood up and said stop when people were being bullied or said no to doing things that would hurt another person or saying no when people were talking about someone behind their back. And it was really awkward and it was really uncomfortable to say no. And at the end of the day, you're out of the group. You will be vindicated by Jesus. Wouldn't that be a great badge of honor to wear when Jesus returns and allegiance to Jesus. You trusted him that he's got your back and he will break into this world and he will vindicate us. He will vindicate you. When Jesus returns, you will be vindicated for trusting him when it's hard. You will be vindicated and you will be acclaimed by Jesus for trusting in him. You'll be vindicated publicly for giving your unwavering, stiff-necked hope and allegiance to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This letter was written to stir up our hope in the return of Jesus. And in order to stir up our hearts even more, he invites his people to this table. 